Good morning, church at the Red Door. It is good to be with you. The last time that I had the pleasure of speaking with you, I was still on a feeding tube and only a few months removed from the hospital. Now, since my health issues started in late 2017, I have gained 74 pounds. My feeding tube has been removed and God is in the process of fully restoring my health. In addition to that, uh, my wife, my lovely wife Jillian, is also pregnant with our first child. And so I wanted to share this good news with you and also just thank you for those of you that have been praying for us over the last few years for contributing to the miracle that God has worked in our life. So thank you so very much. And thank you again for having me this morning. Today's message is entitled Divine Intentions, The Reasons for Which God Made Humanity. In 2014, there was a New York Times bestseller entitled Being Mortal, Medicine and What Matters in the End, written by a surgeon named Atul Gawande. And one of the stories that he tells in the book is of a young physician named Bill Thomas. Bill Thomas was a Harvard Medical School graduate, and after graduating from Harvard Medical School, he had a number of prestigious and very lucrative opportunities in the medical field that he overlooked and turned down so that he could move back to his hometown and practice emergency medicine in upstate New York. While practicing medicine there, he met his wife, who was a nurse. They got married. They started a family. And he ended up buying a farm. And uh, from his time on the farm, he decided he wanted a more balanced life. And so he wanted to give up his uh, emergency position at the local hospital and find something that gave him uh, a little bit more of a balanced schedule. And so he ended up taking a job as the medical director of a local nursing home with 80-plus severely disabled patients. And what he saw there really depressed him. If you've ever been to a nursing home, you know it can be rather sad. The patients themselves were depressed, they were lonely, and they were helpless. Things were so bad, the place was so lifeless, that Bill was convinced that something was wrong with their medical care. So what he did was he ran a number of tests, he tweaked all of their medicines, and in the end, nothing changed. Uh, except for, as the book uh, jokingly says, their medical bills, which the families weren't too happy about. But Bill was undeterred. So he was trying to figure out a way how he could inject life back into this nursing home. And so he started to think outside of the box. And he came up with a very outside of the box um, idea. And he brought that to the board of the nursing home. And they gave him permission as long as he could go and lobby and get permission from the local government, which he did. And they gave him permission. And what he ended up doing was he decided to bring in and plants, people, and uh, animals. And so he brought in two cats, four dogs, 100 birds, and he invited all of the staff to start bringing in their children into the nursing home into the rhythms of the day. And over the course of a month and two months, things began to change because the, uh, the patients in the nursing home ended up adopting and naming every single one of those birds. They also had responsibilities for taking care of the plants and they all got on the schedule to start walking and taking care of the dogs. Um, the children that came in, they also started helping them with their homework and with their piano lessons. And sure enough, the whole place came back to life. The people came back to life. So much so that the drug costs dropped by 38%, in particular the, dr the drugs that the patients took for agitation, and the death rate fell by 15%. The people that were doing the study um, to look at the changes that had taken place couldn't pinpoint what it was that led to the reduction in drug costs and death. But when they asked Bill Thomas, he said that he knew 
why things had changed. And the answer he gave uh, those that were interviewing him was that what had changed was that the fundamental human need for a reason to live had been met. That's what had changed. They ended up uh, copying this program and uh, sharing it across the nation, the results, and people started adopting the program. And guess what he entitled it? The Eden Alternative. So this little nursing home, I think, is a beautiful microcosm of our text today, which I'm going to read you now, which is Genesis 1, 26 through 28, which reads, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I also want to read for you Genesis 2.18, which reads, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Let's pray before we dive into this text. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the gift of new life in your son. We pray that you would speak to us through your word today, that you would use it to saturate our minds and ignite our hearts. We love you, Lord, and we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. I want us to start this morning by putting on our ancient Near Eastern hats and imagining what it would have been like to hear this text for the first time. In the ancient Near East, the vast, vast majority of people were polytheists. That is, they believed in the existence of multiple gods. These gods had authority over varying aspects of nature. They were often in conflict with one another, and they didn't think very highly of humans. So, for example, in the ancient Mesopotamian origin story, there were senior gods and there were junior gods. And the senior gods made the junior gods to do the work that the senior gods didn't want to do. But the junior gods thought this work was beneath them, and so they went on strike. And instead of destroying the junior gods, guess what the senior gods did? They decreed that humans be made to do the work that the gods didn't want to do. So notice, the gods didn't make humans to have a love relationship with them, and they didn't make the humans to partner with them in the work that they were doing. Instead, they exclusively made humans to do the work that they didn't want to do. And by the way, in these ancient Near Eastern cultures, only the kings were considered to, be, to, considered to have been made in the image of the gods. Now contrast that with what we see here in Genesis, where all humanity is said to have been made in the image of the one true God. And as I hope to make clear today, the text suggests that God made humanity for two reasons. Primarily for the purpose of relational enjoyment, and secondarily, to partner with him in the cultivation and management of his creation. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at each of those purposes in turn and then consider how the fall and redemption impacts each. So how do we know that God made humanity primarily for the purpose of relational enjoyment? Where do we see that in the text? So notice that in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. And then it goes on in verse 27 to say, in the image of God he made him, male and female he created them. 
We see here that Adam and Eve were made as a plurality of persons because God is a plurality of persons. In other words, the reason it's not good for man to be alone is because God is not alone. Humans are first and foremost relational beings because God is first and foremost a relational being. As Jerry Walls writes, God is a plurality of divine persons who have existed in a relationship of mutual love and a static delight for all eternity. So the reason love is the primary way we reflect who God is is because the person of God precedes the work of God. That is to say that God was love before he was creator. Another way that we see in this text that humans were made primarily for the, the purpose of relational enjoyment is that day six, the day that Adam and Eve were created, doesn't culminate in job training. What does it culminate in? It culminates in a wedding, a wedding which God himself officiates. So these early sections of Genesis are highly, highly relational. Another way we know that God made humanity primarily for the purpose of relational enjoyment is the way that Adam and Eve spend their first full day. Have you ever thought about that? What was Adam and Eve's first full day? It was a Sabbath day, a day which the Heidelberg Catechism says of festive rest in which they enjoyed God and the fruits of God's labor together. As C.S. Lewis says, in commanding us to enjoy him, God is inviting us, or I'm sorry, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Think about that. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. The seventh day is also the day that, that God takes up residence in Eden. By the way, Eden, if you didn't know this, actually the word means delight. So the creation week itself climaxes with Adam and Eve moving into their new home with God, who in the remainder of the Old Testament is chiefly described using the relational metaphors of father and husband. So taking all of this together, the first point is that humans were made primarily to be in a an endless relationship of love and joy with God and with one another, which is of course why Jesus says that the first and second greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Adam and Eve also have a secondary purpose as well, one that is also unique when compared with other ancient Near Eastern cultures. The second way that we see that Adam and Eve image God in this text is by cultivating and ruling over creation. So look at verse 28. Verse 28 reads, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In other words, as Udo Middleman says, God created a real world, but he left it deliberately unfinished. However, unlike the ancient Mesopotamian deities, God doesn't make Adam and Eve to do the work he doesn't want to do. Rather, God makes Adam and Eve to partner with him in the work that he delights to do, which is why, that he, says, which is why he says that it's good or very good at the end of each day of work. So according to Genesis, the big idea here, the, the, the point of Genesis is that work isn't a bad thing. Work is a good thing. Humans were made to work because God is a worker. As Tim Keller points out, in Genesis 1, we see a God with his hands in the dirt. 
And the work at hand is the cultivation or the development of creation into a godly or God-honoring civilization. That is the goal of creation, the development of creation into a godly or God-honoring civilization. So the idea here is that humans are God's co-workers in this project of creation. For instance, we see God partnering with Adam in Genesis 2.19 where it says, Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. You see, God let Adam name the creatures he had made. This would have been utterly shocking to Moses' original audience. Do you remember who Moses' original audience was? Moses' original audience were the Israelites who had been enslaved in Egypt. All they knew was harsh labor and making bricks without straw. Pharaoh didn't give them a Sabbath day or ask for their opinion on matters of state or anything else. But here in Genesis, we see a God who involves all humanity in his rule over all creation. To paraphrase, to paraphrase Bruce Ashford, we see here that these Israelites are not God, which keeps them humble, but they are like God, which gives them and their work unimaginable dignity. This message of humanity existing for the twin purposes of relational enjoyment and cultural development was utterly unique in the ancient world. And it's also utterly unique in the modern world. As you know, we don't live in a polytheistic culture. We live in a secular culture. Granted, we have uh, multiple idols, but they are secular idols. And for the last 60 plus years, our secular culture has told us and every generation that life is devoid of any objective meaning or purpose. As atheist Bertrand Russell writes, man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. You see, on atheism, we are not artistic masterpieces of incalculable worth with a divine purpose. We are cosmic accidents that have been left on the doorstep of the universe by chance. We came from nowhere. We are here for no reason, and we go nowhere when we die. How encouraging. It's no wonder that the wealthiest society in history is plagued with abnormal levels of anxiety and depression. Mind you, I'm not talking about the unavoidable anxiety that comes from living in a broken world with broken bodies, loss, and trauma. I'm talking about the avoidable anxiety and depression that comes from believing that life is meaningless. And this type, this very specific type of anxiety and depression is ubiquitous, especially among our young people who are literally starving for meaning. I remember a number of years ago, I was at a wedding, a wedding which I had the privilege of being the best man at. And after the rehearsal dinner, I remember my best friend's younger brother coming up to me and asking if we could talk. We went and sat down and started to have a conversation, and he began to explain to me that he was in the midst of an existential crisis, which unfortunately in our culture has come to be known as a quarter-life crisis. Not just a midlife crisis, now we've got quarter-life crisis. And so he sat down with me and explained every morning he would walk out of his house, look up, and be met with this overwhelming feeling of anxiety and disorientation. He said he didn't know why he was here or what he was supposed to be doing with his life. I have mentored a number of young men over the years whose chief question for me has been, why are we here? 
It was conversations like those that sent me to the pages of Scripture searching for the answer. And to my surprise, this is not an unanswerable question or an unsolvable dilemma. God has clearly revealed to us in the pages of Scripture the reason for which we exist, and we have to shout it from the housetops. The reason for which God made humanity is first and foremost an endless relationship of love and joy with him and to partner with him in the development of a godly civilization. But we also have the answer, of course, to why the world isn't the way that it's supposed to be, which is also something that these young men are wrestling with. Why isn't the way the world I feel it's intended to be? In Genesis, we learn that sin turns relational enjoyment into relational estrangement, conflict, and sorrow. Adam and Eve blame one another. They run from God, and they are driven from God's direct presence in the garden. Consequently, we are all born estranged from God and our fellow man to varying degrees. We also learn in Genesis that sin turns cultural development into cultural destruction, corruption, and decay. By the sweat of his brow and against thorns and thistles, Adam would eat from the ground. It's because of the fall that our world is well acquainted with joblessness and famine and corruption and everything from politics to business to education. In short, the world is broken and we feel the weight of it. But God intervened in Christ so that through Christ, we could be reconciled to God and one another. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 28, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In Colossians 1, 19 through 20, it says that God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In other words, Christ not only reconciles people, but creation and culture to God as well. As N.T. Wright writes, from whales to waterfalls, the whole created order has in principle been reconciled to God. Isaiah 55, 13 puts this beautifully where it says, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. But it's not just whales and waterfalls. Wall Street, the White House, and the wide world of sports have in principle been reconciled to God as well. That is, Christ has reclaimed culture and given us the ministry of cultural restoration in addition to the ministry of relational reconciliation. We are God's agents of cultural reformation. That is, we are called to make true in practice what is true in principle when it comes to culture. For instance, when Zacchaeus, the tax collector, gets saved, he stands up and says to the Lord, Lord, look, I will give half of my, my money to the poor, and anybody that I have cheated, I'm going to pay back four times the amount that I took. In other words, Zacchaeus begins to function properly as a tax collector. And when the soldiers ask Jesus, and what shall we do? He says to them, become missionaries and pastors. <laughs> no, what does he say? Don't extort money from people by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. In other words, begin functioning properly as a soldier. The redemptive work of God in Christ overcomes sin so that we can be, be, uh, again be in a relationship of love and joy with him and so that we can again partner with him in the development of a godly civilization. So here's what I told those young men. First, we primarily exist to be in and enjoy right relationship with God. 
You can only be in right relationship with God through Christ. Repent, believe, and delight yourself in the Lord. Two, our callings are the way that God exercises his rule in the world. In other words, God feeds us through the farmer, he heals us through the doctor, and he educates us through the teacher. So whatever you do, whatever you do, work as unto the Lord. Use your talents for the advancement of God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. A few years ago, I had the distinct privilege of baptizing one of those young men in our neighborhood pool. And he is now in college. He's actually in, uh, has finished college. He's now in law school, preparing to partner with God and bringing justice to the world. So my applications for us from this text this morning would be twofold. First, this text is calling us to not only cultivate an intimate relationship with God, but to pattern all of our relationships after the self-giving love that exists between the persons of the Trinity. And when we do that, when we make love the heart of life, joy is the inevitable beat. But because we live in a fallen world, because we live in a broken world, we are also called to facilitate relational reconciliation. And we do that. This text is calling us to do that by sharing the gospel and being peacemakers in, in society. Sharing the gospel is the primary outward mission of the church. Second, this text is calling us to pattern our work after the creative and restorative work of God. So whatever you do, whether you are in business or education or homemaking or sports or politics, you are to partner with God in his will being done in those areas of life. Again, but because we live in a fallen world, this text is also calling us to facilitate cultural restoration in those areas so that they function ethically and with excellence. In other words, this text is calling us to be salt and light in society. Now, granted, our being salt and light in society is not going to be the difference between heaven and hell. But you know what it is going to be the difference between? If you're familiar with the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, it's going to be the difference between Bedford Falls and Pottersville. And especially for the poor and needy in our world, that is going to make all the difference. So we've got two missional applications from this text, to be about the business and the work of relational reconciliation, which is sharing the gospel, and we are to be about the business and the work of cultural restoration. I'm sure many of you are familiar with William Wilberforce, Hannah Moore, um, and their group of friends. Their group of friends was known as the Clapham sect. And God used this, this diverse group of people that what they were all unified by was Christ. And we, they had politicians, obviously, William Wilberforce. Hannah Moore was um, a poet and an author and an educator. Um, and they had businessmen. And they, brought, uh, they had pastors. They brought this diverse group of friends together. And they said, how can we partner together to use our gifts to bring about revival and reformation in British society? You might know that William Wilberforce's two great aims were the reformation of morals in British society and the abolition of the slave trade. And over the course of their lives, by coming together and making art and doing politics and doing business under the glory of God, God actually brought about revival and reformation. The, the, the slave trade was indeed abolished and all of the uh, morals of British society truly were transformed. So, as I've thought about this text and thought about you at Church at the Red Door, from what I understand, there is considerable influence in your church. And so I guess I would just ask us to be collectively praying for how we can partner together as pastors and businessmen and homemakers and educators and artists to see revival and reformation take place in our day. So let us be praying about that 
and trust God to bring that about in our cities, in our states, and in our country. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the gospel that's proclaimed from this text, that in Genesis 3, you promised that there would be one that comes to crush the head of the serpent, to not only free us from sin, but to free us from the oppressive forces of ethical opposition that we see uh, in the spiritual realm, but also, Lord, in the physical realm. You have come, Christ, and reclaimed all of the world, people, creation, and culture. You have brought everything back unto good order. And so, Lord, I pray that we would serve you in a way that is consistent with our calling and that we would trust you for results. We ask you for this uh, transformation and healing of our nation the way that uh, the Clapham sect saw it in their day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.